Last week we talked about mindfulness of dhammas with regard to doubt and how doubts arise through unwise attention. Unwise attention manifests in different ways. In the most obvious way, there's unwise attention when we're not paying close attention to the arising object in the moment, either because our minds are wandering or because we're engaged with a kind of half-hearted mindfulness, that, that quality of more or less mindful but we're not really connecting precisely and exactly just in the moment. On another more global level, unwise attention means not knowing or not discerning what is skillful and what is unskillful, both in our minds and in our lives. And it's this not knowing of what's skillful and what's unskillful, which is the breeding ground not only for doubt, but for all the other hindrances as well. So in case we're uncertain or confused about this discernment, exactly what is skillful, what is unskillful, the Buddha pointed out very explicitly those actions of the body, actions of speech, actions of mind that are unwholesome, that cut us off from wisdom, cut us off from compassion. It's these actions, these unwholesome actions, that bring about suffering both to ourselves and they bring about harm to others. And these teachings, this wise discernment of what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, is found in all the Buddhist traditions. It's the foundation, or it's the bedrock, for all the work we do on this path. So tonight I'd like to speak about the ten unwholesome actions that the Buddha highlighted. Because he's telling us very clearly, very specifically, these are things that are the cause of suffering. So pay attention bring wise attention to them. Now many of them are very familiar to us. We've heard this many times. But if we keep nurturing the seeds of this discernment within us, nurturing the seeds of these teachings, and then remembering them in the actual moments of intention, just when we're about to act, if we can remember them, then it helps keep us awake. It helps awaken us from the routine of habituated action. Remembering the teachings actually helps wake us up. So what is the first of the unwholesome actions of the body? The most obvious, in a way, is not killing. Well, killing is the unwholesome action, and not killing is the skillful aspect. Not killing or harming ourselves or others. I mean, just think about this in the world today. If people simply didn't kill other people, 
You know, if they understood this most basic understanding, the world would be a very different place. And it's amazing what's happening now. Just all over the world, it's, it's as if people's minds are just on a trigger, a trigger reaction, trigger response. You know, and something difficult arises and the response is killing. You know, we've come so far from a basic, basic understanding of what's skillful and unskillful. It also means not killing animals for sport or pleasure, not killing things because we don't like the way they look. You know, I, I had this experience uh, very strongly in my early years in India. I was living up in the mountains during the summer months, and some friends and I rented this kind of quite primitive little cottage, and we were there practicing. But in the cottage, in the summer, there were just these huge spiders, huge hairy spiders, which hung out on the ceiling, you know, of my bedroom. And they were pretty big, you know, they were like very unpleasant. I didn't like the fact that they were there at all, but it's like I had committed to, to not killing. And so what to do? You know, there was not much to do uh, because the cottage was pretty porous in terms of its uh, openness to outside critters. And it was very interesting just to be there and not kill. And after a while, just getting okay, getting comfortable with the fact that these big hairy spiders had their home on the ceiling and I was down near the floor and we coexisted just fine. Then you think about what we do in the West, you know, the first, the first bit of unpleasant looking creature, you know, we just take out the spray can of raid or whatever we use, you know, kill it. And so the Buddha is pointing out a very different attitude towards living beings. You know, in an act of killing, this tremendous sense of alienation, of separation. So is it possible to relate to all forms of life, you know, as fellow living beings, all of whom want to live, all of whom have this desire? Sometimes we're faced with difficult situations, difficult choices. I mean, what do we do, you know, with mosquitoes that carry malaria? You know, what's the choice? Or there are carpenter ants that are chomping away at your house. You know, do you just say, well, enjoy? <laughs> uh, probably not. You know, we do need to make choices in living most of us, as lay people in the world, will be faced with these dilemmas. But I think recognizing that acts of killing are always unwholesome, even when we feel a higher value makes it, makes it seem like the wise thing to do, we can do it with a very different mind state. You know, if it feels like it's necessary in a certain circumstance, we can do it out of compassion rather than out of hatred or aversion. So it's just to pay careful attention, to bring a wise attention to this arena. 
The second of the unwholesome actions of the body is stealing. You know, not or taking that which is not offered to us. You know, we can see this on so many levels. We see it sort of on a society level, kind of sometimes the rather astounding levels of dishonesty and theft, you know, in business, on those huge corporate scandals, you know, where there was just basic stealing and, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people uh, harmed greatly in their lives because of it. Not stealing in terms of exploiting people, you know, or not using uh, shared resources of the planet wisely. It's a kind of stealing also. Sometimes we steal by inaction, by not doing something. And I had one very troubling experience of this, troubling in retrospect. This goes back years ago to when I just finished my time in the Peace Corps. This was in 1967. I was traveling home from Thailand, stopped in Nepal, and did this trek up to a little town called Nagarkot, or a place called Nagarkot, uh, which is above Kathmandu Valley. It's a, it's a day's trek, and you can see Everest, you know, from that uh, from that hill hill place. And at that time, I don't know what's there now, but at that time there was just like a little lean-to or hut where people could stay overnight with you know, some cots in the hut and no electricity. So you know, when night came, everybody went to bed quite early. Uh, it was very cold uh, up there. So we were in bed, the few people who were up there. And each cot had two blankets on it. Uh, so I got into bed, and it was really cold, and I realized that my cot, for some reason, had three. So I was there, and it was still pretty cold. I was shivering, and I was wondering how I was going to make it through the night. And then about midnight, another trekker uh, came in and you know, got into bed. I realized there was only one blanket on his cot. And so the caretaker came in, you know, does anybody have the extra blanket? And I'm just lying there feeling really cold. <laughs> and it's just so interesting, looking back now, how my mind rationalized, <laughs> you know, not saying anything. Well, I didn't ask for this blanket, it was just here. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't say anything. You know, and now it's like, what is it, 40 years later? <laughs> You know, I still feel ashamed <laughs> when I think of that. And it was just, it was just the mind, you know, it was a kind of stealing. Uh, but we rationalize in so many ways in the moment. You know, I didn't have as clear an understanding as I do now of wholesome actions and unwholesome actions. So killing is the first of the unwholesome actions of body, stealing is the second. The third of the unwholesome actions of the body has to do with sexual misconduct. 
Now this means different things at different levels. You know, as monks or nuns or lay people on retreat, we take a precept or a vow of celibacy, of refraining from sexual activity. So in this context, sexual misconduct would mean breaking that precept of celibacy. As lay people in the world, just as we're living our lives in the world, it means something else. Generally, sexual misconduct refers to adultery or deception or getting involved in relationships where we're leading other people to break their vows of commitment. It might be inappropriate relations you know, between teacher and student or therapist and client, you know, a doctor or patient. There are many arenas where sexual relations are inappropriate. It seems very important to look at this area of our lives carefully because as we all know, sexual energy is exceedingly powerful. You know, it's, it's often when we feel most alive, you know, when this energy is up, it's such a strong, powerful force within us. If there's unwise attention to it, then we can really get caught in unskillful, unwholesome action. One of my favorite examples of Burmese English translation happened when Saira Upandita was giving some talk, some teaching on this, you know, on sexual misconduct and desire. And, and so he went on and on and on, maybe, you know, for five minutes talking in Burmese. And then the translator translated all of that in four words. Right, so <laughs> it, was, it was quite a translation. And so what the translator said after Sayadaw went on and on about all this, all the translator said was, lust cracks the brain. <laughs> and I think that really sums it up. Lust cracks the brain. And it can, and we've probably all had experiences of it cracking our brains. It's powerful. When we pay careful attention, when we bring wise attention to this energy, we can learn a lot about the nature of desire. I'd like to read just a short quotation from the book Anna Karenina, you know, by Tolstoy. You know, and in the book, of course, this uh, young, dashing uh, army officer falls in love with Anna, who is married. His name, this army officer's name is Vronsky. You know, and a lot of the book is largely about what happens in the, her falling in love and then this aftermath. So this is 
Tolstoy's uh, comment on this. He said, Vronsky, meanwhile, in spite of the complete realization of what he had so long desired, was not perfectly happy. He soon felt that the realization of his desires gave him no more than a grain of sand out of the mountain of happiness he had expected. It showed him the mistake men make in picturing to themselves happiness as the realization of their desires. So there's a great wisdom in that. You know, because commonly we do think that happiness comes through the realization of our desires and we put so much of our life energy into that. The power of the practice, and especially on retreat where we are refraining from acting out, at least sexual desires, it gives us a chance to see the very nature of desire, to understand it more deeply, to understand its impermanence, its transiency. Because we're not acting it out, doesn't mean that the desires, the sexual fantasies, the energies are not going to arise, but because we're not acting them out, we can feel them, be with them, be mindful of them, pay wise attention to them, and see how they arise and pass by themselves. We see there's no need either to suppress it or to express it. We begin to see this desire itself as just part of the passing show of phenomena. It comes and goes by itself. And it's very interesting in the practice, in paying wise attention, whether it's sexual desire or any other kind, pay particular attention to the feeling of desire, noting it, being with it, and then notice in the moment when it leaves. Because it doesn't last. It's there for some time, and then at a certain point it goes. Notice that transition point. And I think you'll feel, I think commonly, in the moment of it going, it feels like we're let out of the grip of something. We can feel the sense of release, the sense of ease. Something I mentioned to a couple of you in interviews, a very good note for working with desire in meditation practice, and this is a note that's helped me a lot, particularly with recurrent fantasies, is dead end. As soon as you see the fantasy, the desire arising, note dead end. Because in fact, it doesn't go anyplace. You know, we can go down that whole path of our fantasy, whether it's sexual fantasy, food fantasy, whatever. We can go down the whole path of the fantasy, and then we realize this is not going anyplace. It is a dead end, and we simply have to come back and then catch the next breath. Well, it's helpful if you put the dead end sign up at the beginning of the journey, <laughs> rather than wait to see it at the end. As we learn more and more deeply about the nature of desire on retreat, 
it then gives us some power, some strength to relate with it skillfully in our lives in the world. So these are the three unwholesome actions of body. Buddha talked then of four unwholesome actions of speech. Now speech is such a powerful influence in our lives and so much suffering comes from unwise attention to our speech. Now the Buddha singled out right speech as one of the factors of the Eightfold Path to Awakening. But in our lives, do we really make it part of our paths? Or do we kind of relegate it to some place of secondary importance? Speech conditions our relationships, it conditions our minds, it conditions karmic results that come back to us in the future. We need to pay careful attention. So the first of the unwholesome actions of speech, again, is the most obvious, and that is lying, saying things which aren't true. And we do this in different ways. You know, it might be slight exaggerations. It might be humorous untruths. We might say falsehoods in some desire to protect ourselves or maybe even to protect others. You know, we think that this would be a good thing to do. And of course, there can be deliberate lies told with really quite a malicious intent, you know, to cause divisiveness or harm. So an interesting question to ask ourselves is why do we lie? Now, why do we say things which are untrue? What are the motivations behind false speech? Is it greed? Is it desire for some kind of self-aggrandizement? Or is it from some fear of rejection? Maybe we fear if we tell the truth we'll be rejected. Or is that of jealousy? One of the most inspiring parts to me of was many inspiring parts of the Buddha's journey. As a bodhisattva, you know, in all his many lifetimes working towards Buddhahood, it's said that he committed many of the unwholesome actions. It's not that he started off completely pure. Right? He was working with all the same things that we work with. But it's said from the time of his prediction that he would become a Buddha in some future lifetime, that from that time, even though he did many, many unwholesome things, it said that he never knowingly told a lie. And I feel what a great commitment that would be in our lives. Could we live our lives with that commitment? You know, that commitment to truthfulness. But what seems so simple, I mean, one would think that this would be the simplest thing to do. We'll just, we'll just say what is true. Often in our lives it doesn't turn out to be that simple because of some long-established habit patterns. 
a classic story. This is, this is like one of the IMS classics. You know, there was a yogi up at the retreat center during one of the three-month retreats. And, you know, at the center there, there's a big walk-in refrigerator, just like there is here. And one evening, a staff person went in and they saw a yogi in this walk-in, you know, with his hand in the box of dates. And the staff person was very polite, and they just said, you know, can I help you? <laughs> and just without thought, you know, without any thinking at all, the yogi said, I'm looking for the maintenance man. <laughs> I mean, it was just the first, the first impulse was to deny, you know, oh, I'm not taking these dates. <laughs> I'm looking for the maintenance person. It may be that we are not Olympic-level liars, but I think it's still helpful to sensitize ourselves you know, to the small falsehoods that we may engage in, and to keep an eye out, because it may be that we're, we're even unconscious of many of the times we do it. You know, can we create this small the habit of a small mindfulness bell that goes off, you know, that just reminds us in those moments, oh, this isn't true. What I'm about to say isn't true. You know, and so it just is that reminder to us. It takes practice, it takes alertness, and it takes a, a kind of courage to do this. You know, to see ourselves honestly and openly and to speak only what is true. Of course, the Buddha added one other dimension to this in terms of right speech. He said not only to speak what is true, but also what is useful. So we want to keep both criteria. Okay, the third of the unwholesome actions of speech is lying. Well, the second is harsh or angry, or aggressive speech. You know, this is impactful. How do we feel when somebody is directing harsh and angry speech at us? You know, just imagine for a moment how it is to us, how, how we feel when this is happening. We probably feel hurt or defensive. You know, or perhaps get angry in return. It's not the best environment for open communication when this aggressive speech is happening back and forth. It's important to realize that the intent here is not to suppress or deny what we may be feeling, because there may be strong emotion you know, in us at that time. But it's to communicate in a way that fosters openness and connection rather than divisiveness. And again, this takes a lot of practice because there are many deeply habituated speech patterns. We fall into them very easily. The third kind of unwholesome speech, this false speech, angry or aggressive speech, the third is backbiting or gossip. You know, these words cause disharmony. They cause loss of friendship. 
So a question I think that would be interesting for all of us to ask ourselves, since talking about other people is quite a common pastime. You know, a good part of our conversation is about that. So a question, I think, for us is, what is our enjoyment of it? What's the enjoyment of gossip? Even if it's not malicious gossip, but what are we getting out of it? Is there some kind of ego gratification? At one point, I made the experiment. Um, This was when I was first getting interested in Buddhism. I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand, and I was just exploring all this. I made the experiment for some months simply not to talk about a third person. I wasn't going to talk to someone about someone else. And it was amazing because maybe 90% of my speech was eliminated. You know, and it was astounding to realize how much of the time that's what I was talking about. So even if We don't take it that far, but still in our lives, we want to take a lot of care when we're speaking about someone else. So we don't fall into the unwholesome action of gossip. And so we we need to look at our motivation, our intention. Is the intention in some way, and sometimes it's quite subtle, is our intention to divide people Or is it to bring people together? It's a very strong impulse. Some years ago, maybe 10 years ago, this person was writing a book about the different spiritual scenes in America. And he came to interview me along with other teachers. And he was a very skilled interviewer interviewer. And just in the course of, you know, our conversation, he just started asking me about what I thought about all these different teachers. You know, it just came out in conversation. I could feel everything in me wanted to offer my two cents (laughs) about all my colleagues. But somehow that little mindfulness bell went off, you know, and no, that's not wholesome speech. I was so grateful because when I saw the book come out, everything I had said in the interview was right there in the book. And if I had actually given voice, you know, and kind of indulged that impulse, it would have been very uh, unpleasant. (laughs) I was so grateful for that moment of mindfulness, of restraint. You know, so we need to watch. We need to take care. So the last of the unwholesome actions of speech is lying or false speech, angry, harsh speech, gossip, you know, backbiting. And the fourth kind is frivolous or useless talk. Now, and this kind of talk is very enervating. It's, and it creates a loss of respect. Our, our words become worthless. Not only worthless, sometimes this kind of useless talk can have pretty strong consequences right in the moment. 
there's one story which so illustrates this, but you have to remember that this incident that I'm going to mention happened pre-9-11, because post-9-11 it's even hard to imagine that it could ever have happened. So this happened pre. This friend of mine from New York was going uh, on a vacation to Bali, and he went out to Kennedy Airport, got on the plane, uh, flight attendant, and he had a hand injury. So he, was, he had these kind of exercise balls, you know, that was just strengthening his hand. So the flight attendant came by and just asked him, oh, what is that? And this friend, just without any thought at all, said, oh, this is plastique, you know, which is an explosive that people use to blow things up. I mean, he was just saying it as a joke. Within about two minutes, the police were on, he was off the plane, they kept him for days, you know, kind of interrogating, trying to figure out what was really going on. So, of course, <laughs> he missed the flight, but finally he convinced them, you know, that it was just a joke. The airline swore he'll, he was never going to fly on that airline again. <laughs> anyway, he ends up finally getting to Bali, having a good time. On his way back, he's sitting in the airport in Bali, coming back, and he's just in conversation with the person next to him, and beginning to tell the story of what happened you know, back in New York. And he just turns to this person and said, you know, you're sitting next to a terrorist. <laughs> and again, it just, it just kind of popped out of the mouth. Useless talk, frivolous talk. Fortunately, nothing happened from that. <laughs> but how many times do we do that just to make conversation or to liven things up or to whatever, whatever the motivation is, without thought? You know, it just kind of pops out. Something that is really useless. There's another, what I found, an even deeper strain of this unwholesome action. And this is something I've just found very interesting to watch in myself. And it has to do with the defilement, the frivolous talk that comes out of the defilement of conceit. You know, and as you know, in the, Buddhist, in the Buddhist psychology, conceit is just that sense of I am. Right? It could be I am in comparison to someone else. I'm better than, I'm worse than, I'm equal to. But it's just the, the I amness. That's what, that's what conceit means in the Buddhist context. So I was in New York teaching and then driving back to Barry with a friend we're driving back, and I just uh, conversing, ordinary conversation. And then I noticed this impulse to make a comment about something I had done in New York. And the only, the only point of the comment was as a self-reference. I mean, there was no value to it in terms of the conversation. It wasn't about anything. It was just a way in the conversation of pointing back to myself. And so I was mindful of that. I saw, I saw the thought come, and I saw... And I said, no, I, you know, there's no value in this. This is frivolous talk. It's just, it's just about self-reference. It's just conceit. So let it go. 
And then about 30 seconds later, I could feel the impulse to say it again. Let it go. And it was amazing. And this is what was so striking to me. How many times that impulse came up and how strong it was even after I had seen it, even after I had recognized it. The habitual power of that defilement, it's like it's in there in a latent way until circumstances arises for it to come out. And then it can have this enormous force, even behind something as simple as just you know, a self-referential statement. The force is powerful, but it was also very powerful to see it that clearly. You know, oh, look, look what's happening here. Look at the energy of this. And it, it really felt like it was coming right out of the heart. You know, it's, this is wise attention. You know, where we're really paying careful attention to what's going on. And when there isn't, when there's unwise attention, you know, when we are not looking carefully, it's all of these patterns of unwholesome speech just come spilling out because they're so deeply habituated. Four of the ten unwholesome actions are about speech. So this is not an insignificant thing. The Buddha is highlighting this in a very big way. You know, so I'm talking about this now not because you have much time, much opportunity to practice while you're on retreat, but to plant it as seeds in the mind because it's such an important area when we go back into the world. Okay, so there are the three unwholesome actions of the body, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, four unwholesome actions of speech, of lying, harsh speech, gossip, and frivolous talk, and then there are three unwholesome actions of mind. And the first of them is covetousness, the wanting mind, wanting what others may have. You know, it's that sense of never enough. When covetousness is in the mind, we're never satisfied. It's the opposite of mudita. You know, that Brahma Vihara where we take delight in the happiness of others, in what others have, in the success of others. Covetousness is not taking delight, but, but that feeling of envy, of wanting for ourselves. This state, this unwholesome state of mind, can lead to a lot of other negative, unskillful mind states. It can lead to envy, it can lead to ill will, it can lead to jealousy. You know, this can be in worldly things and also in spiritual ones. One of the one of my favorite stories of just how this covetousness of wanting, you know, what others may have leads to other kind of negative mind states. 
This is a, it's a incident described by the, the writer Anne Lamott. And I, I read this in an article about her. It said, writer Anne Lamott describes how difficult it is to deal with the triumphs of other writers, particularly if one of them happens to be a friend. And then this is Anne Lamott in quotes. It can wreak just the tiniest bit of havoc with your self-esteem to find that you are hoping for small bad things to happen to this friend, she says, for, say, her head to blow up. (laughs) It just kind of captures that unwholesome state of mind which we often, or at least sometimes, find ourselves in. You know, and it, it really comes out of a covetousness, of a wanting something that somebody else has. And it can extend to spiritual practice, you know, to our fellow meditators. Remember one time I was in Burma, I'd gone uh, to sit in the monastery, and a friend and colleague had been there as a monk for several years, you know, before uh, I went there at that time. So he was in just this incredibly luminous place. You know, you could just feel the kind of purity of his mind. And uh, so I went and it was quite extraordinary. But my first response to it was both jealousy, <laughs> because I had just come, flown in, you know, from being really busy, so my mind was not at all in that state. You know, and I was just trying to get a little quiet. And So my first you know, I saw him in my first thing. Oh. <laughs> you know, it was kind of a jealousy or envy. I want that. Why does he have that? But again, there's, at a certain point, some wise attention did, did finally uh, uh, click in. And I actually started doing mudita. I, I made him the object of that meditation. And it was amazing. As soon as I could see what was going on in my mind and replace that covetousness with mudita, my whole mind state changed. So we want, we want to watch for that. The Buddha spoke of contentment, which is really the opposite of covetousness. He spoke of the quality of contentment as being our greatest wealth. You know, and it's so obvious. We, we can see people with so much who are filled with the covetousness or just wanting desire for more. And it's as if they're really poor. And people who have very little, who may be completely contented, you know, and there's that feeling of abundance. So, so much has to do with our own mind state. So covetousness is the first of the unwholesome actions of mind. The second are the mind states of ill will, of impatience, of anger, of fear, which are all forms of aversion. Now all these forms of aversion arise either when we don't get what we want, and we get impatient or discouraged or angry, or we do get what we don't want. Something, something comes to us that we don't want. And we can have these very same reactions. So notice situations when aversion arises in you. 
You know, it doesn't have to be big things. It can be small things that happen right in the retreat. Some, something happens, you know, an aversion or ill will arises. Usually, there's something unpleasant that's arising, and we're not acknowledging, we're not being mindful of the unpleasantness. We're reacting to it. It could be a reaction to physical pain or discomfort. It could be a reaction to an unpleasant mind state we don't like, and so we get angry or impatient. It could be difficult situations with other people. You know, people slamming doors or, I don't know, whatever, the things that, the things that bug us, you know, on retreat. Or it might be painful or unpleasant circumstances, situations in the world that cause us to feel aversion or fear. It's so common for us to blame others for how we feel as if it's the other person's responsibility or it's because of the situation. You know, we blame that for how we feel. Years ago, I was in this relationship and still very friendly with, with the person, but one of the great lines of this relationship, uh, this woman would sometimes say to me, stop making me feel aversion. <laughs> <laughs> The whole relationship was worth that line. <laughs> because it's so common. You know, it's like if we're feeling angry, it's because somebody else is making us angry. You know, how common is that? One of the most challenging teachings of the Buddha, and something I just get so energized by the uncompromising nature of this teaching is that 100%, 100% of our suffering is due to unskillful states in our own minds. It does not ultimately matter what the situation is or what the other person is doing. If we're suffering, it's because there's some unwholesome state arising in the mind. Well, I, I am inspired by that teaching because it just demands that we look inside. Instead of always looking to the circumstance or to the situation or to the person, it's saying, look to see how we are relating to that person, how we're relating to that situation. I mean, there are so many stories of very extreme situations, particularly coming out now, you know, from uh, Tibet and the, some of the some of the monks and nuns who were imprisoned by the Chinese and tortured and horrible. I mean, situations where you would think, well, if there's any situation where we should feel angry, you know, this is it. And yet, because of their understanding, their level of understanding and their training, they were able to come out, at least some of them, out of those situations, free of hatred, free of anger. You know, and their whole practice was to stay free of hatred 
in the midst of that. So it's not to say that this is an easy practice and hopefully we won't need to face it in those extreme circumstances, but certainly in the circumstances of our own lives. Can we take responsibility for our own suffering? Where am I getting hooked? Where am I getting caught? How am I relating to this? So it's powerful. This, this can be a direct pointing you know, to liberating our own hearts. Sometimes questions come up about mind states of grief and sorrow. And this is interesting because these are states we don't usually associate with aversion. And yet the Buddha included these two also in this category. Now we need, a, we need quite a great delicacy here so that there's a willingness to investigate the roots of these feelings, these emotions, the roots of grief, the roots of sorrow, and at the same time have enough space to accept them fully and to feel them fully. Now when we investigate, if there's a willingness, and sometimes there isn't, but if there is a willingness to investigate the emotions of grief, the emotions of sorrow, we see that they arise out of the experience of some kind of loss. Then we need to examine what is our relationship to the experience of loss, which is really just another word for change. Is there aversion to it? Is there attachment to what we have lost? you know, whether it's a person or a possession or a particular situation in our lives. This whole arena first it struck me and became interested in it when I came across two different teachings or stories from uh, the Buddha's life. One had to do with the death of his two great disciples, uh, Sariputta and Moggallana, you know, who are the, the greatest of uh, the Buddhist disciples, the ones closest to him. And they both died before the Buddha did. And he said, you know, after they died, addressing the monks, O bhikkhus, this assembly appears indeed empty to me now that Sariputta and Moggallana have passed away. That's kind of a, there's a great poignancy there. You know, these, are, these are the monks who you know, were closest to him and had helped him lead the Sangha. And he's acknowledging the loss, that this assembly appears indeed empty to me now that they've passed away. And at the same time, the opening statement of the Satipatthana Sutta, which I read the other night, where the Buddha says, this path is the direct way for the purification of beings, for overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the realization of Nibbana. 
So it's these two things, you know, contrasting. On the one hand, he's acknowledging the loss, you know, of his two great disciples. And on the other hand, he's manifesting or expressing the fruit of the path is freedom from sorrow and grief. That's when I began to really look at, well, what's the difference between these two? And it became clearer that the experience of loss and grief are two different things. And that grief is the non-acceptance of loss. This is difficult This is difficult to look at, difficult to practice. Because it means opening up to really what is a very non-conventional and different level of understanding. I want to read something which is quite, maybe quite shocking in its straightforwardness. Most of you probably know of our teacher Deepama, you know, this amazingly wonderful woman and yogi who was just, she was an extraordinary yogi with great powers, great attainment, great realization, who had perfected metta, you know, just, she was just so incredibly loving. But she also had this, in her very loving way, quite a fierce commitment to the truth. And again, probably you know a lot of you know her story. She was married young. She had three children. Two of her children died. Her husband died. So she suffered tremendously from grief before she went to the monastery and proceeded on the path. So she's she was not a stranger to all this. So this is many years later. This story is from 1984 when she was back in India living and teaching. And she had many, uh, many disciples in Calcutta. A lot of uh, women, householders would come and practice with her. And this is a story from a woman named uh, Sudipti. So this is, this is the story she wrote. When my son died in 1984, Deepama shocked me with her words. It was a hard teaching I have not forgotten. This is Deepama speaking. Today your son has gone from this world. Why are you shocked? Everything is impermanent. Your life is impermanent. Your husband is impermanent. Your son is impermanent. Your money is impermanent. Your building is impermanent. Everything is permanent, is impermanent. There is nothing that is permanent. When you are alive, you might think, this is my daughter, this is my husband, this is my property, this is my building, this car belongs to me. But when you are dead, nothing is yours, Sudipti. You think you are a serious meditator, but you must really learn that everything is impermanent. That's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing teaching for someone whose son had just died. 
But it's that commitment, just this is the truth of it. And that we can experience loss, we can have the experience of the loss and understand the difference between that and grief. At the same time, as even as we kind of hear these teachings, which are pretty radical, certainly for our conventional understanding you know, of the world. So even as we hear these teachings and try to explore you know, what they might mean for us, we still need to be right where we are and not living in some idealized picture of where we'd like to be. Because most of us probably are not yet completely free of attachment and aversion, you know, or pride and fear. We're not free of sorrow and grief. So we need to acknowledge that and not just pretend, you know, in some Dharma up level. But we can use the teachings just to help us investigate, maybe to go a little deeper in our understanding to learn to open to the feelings without drowning in them, without being so identified with them, experiencing them without holding on. So the last of the unwholesome actions of mind, the first is covetousness, and ill will, aversion, fear, sorrow, grief. The last of them is wrong view. And I'm just going to say a couple of things about this because I'll talk more about this next week. But the first aspect of wrong view is when we don't understand that actions have consequences, that actions bring results. Wrong view is the belief that there's no result from skillful or unskillful actions. And when this wrong view is present in the mind, when this wrong action, unwholesome action of mind is present, it's like trying to navigate through the world, navigate through our lives without understanding what brings happiness and what brings suffering. It's like we're trying to navigate and not knowing you know, what we should do or where we should go. When wrong view is present in this way, we don't stop to consider the results of our actions. We don't realize that whatever we do is going to bring a result dependent on the motivation. For this reason, the Buddha called <laughs> this understanding the light of the world because it illuminates our choices when we understand the right view of actions bring results, we have the opportunity to actually be conscious of our choices, to shape our lives. You know, we, we actually do create our destinies. So the other aspect of wrong view has to do with the wrong view, concept of self. And that we'll talk about next week as we go into the 
contemplation of the dhammas with respect to the aggregates. So wise attention is the clear discernment of what is skillful and what is unskillful. And it was out of the Buddha's compassion that he pointed out these ten unwholesome actions to us. Now it's like planting a sign on a beach, take care, dangerous undertow. The Buddha's like this lifeguard. He's saying, take care. These are the unwholesome actions which are dangerous. They lead to suffering. They lead to harm. Be watchful. Bring wise attention to them. This wise attention really enables us to practice a very mature and long-range vision of freedom. You know, it's freedom is not about just doing what we want when we want it. Freedom is about the space and the wisdom and the love to see what the possibilities are and to choose wisely. So let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.